Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Back with another Q&A episode, and today I am joined by my very close friend, Tay. Tay Tay. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Taylor Fragamini, for those of you who don't know, is a badass climbing coach and root setter with about 10 years of experience with each. She I don't ha- have 10 years of coaching experience. How many years of coaching experience do you have? Um, Six, okay. seven, eight, seven, seven. <laughs> five years on the youth comp circuit, but I, I did some guiding and adult instruction and youth programs, non-competitive youth programs before that too, for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And you now have your own coaching business, Tangent Climbing, that yes. you are building. So everything from coaching little kids in the competition circuit to now coaching more adults to help them try to get the most out of their rock climbing. Yeah. And I think what you are especially good at, from my perspective, is helping people get the most out of their physical capabilities in rock climbing. You're also very good at helping them get stronger, but you're really good at the movement stuff, mental side of stuff, tactics, strategy, because mm-hmm. you are quite, you are a quite good rock climber yourself. Taylor, for people listening, has climbed a gang of 513s <laughs> and she's working on her first 514 these days. Oh my God. And you don't have to tell people You've got that. a project back in St. <laughs> George putting you on blast. Um, but yeah, so... Taylor Irrelevant. and I, Taylor and I have <laughs> I'm been... a 514 climbing coach and route setter. <laughs> There we go. Uh, Taylor and I have been climbing together here in Ten Sleep for the past month or so. And it's been awesome. Um, she's better at than me at this style. And so I've learned a lot from Taylor climbing here, um, not just about rock climbing. So <laughs> I invited her to join me in this Q&A. Uh, to get a coach's perspective on some of the questions that you guys submitted. You didn't invite me. I was like, I want to do it too. <laughs> Put me in. Graciously <laughs> offered to help with the Q&A. Yeah, so we're sitting here in the camps in the campground, sitting here in the van on a rainy Saturday. And we're going to dive into your guys' questions. I'm actually borrowing her chair because I left mine out in the rain on accident. And with that, thanks for tuning in, you guys, and please enjoy this Q&A featuring Taylor Fragamini. All right. This first question isn't exactly a question. Um, I got some feedback from several of you guys about a couple episodes recently, one with one part of a conversation with Jesse Firestone and a part of a conversation with Ryan Devlin, where we were talking about this topic came up a couple times on the podcast. We were talking about how helpful it can be to try to change your circumstances to be able to rock climb more. If you want to get better at rock climbing, finding a way to spend more time on rock can be really helpful, obviously. And I got some feedback that that came off, the way that that was talked about in those conversations came off as quite privileged. And I just wanted to say thank you guys who submitted that feedback. I really appreciate it. And I could have done a better job in both of those episodes of acknowledging that. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is because what I wish we had talked about more, especially me and Jesse, 
because he's a climbing coach and we were talking about quantum leaps that we can make in our climbing, things that can really move the needle for us that aren't the physical training things. I wish we talked more about what people can, what you guys can do if you have limited resources or if you don't have access to climbing and if you can't change your circumstances or move because that is a very privileged thing to be able to do and not everyone can. Um, so yeah, that is something that Taylor has a lot of perspective on and we actually have a list. You made a list of bullet points for me about bullet this. Points. Yeah. I did. You want to kick things off with, with the first one? Sure. Yeah. So this is kind of like a list of things that you can do if your climbing access is quite limited, whether that's outdoor or maybe you live pretty far from a gym and can only go once or twice a week. Um, so these are other things you can do that will be helpful that don't require actual climbing time. So number one is giving attention to your mental game. So one way that I like to think about this a lot is how confidence, motivation, and expectations impact your climbing. So the relationship between the three is definitely different from person to person. And understanding where yours are at, I kind of think of them as like three different lines on a graph, for instance, is one of those things constant for you? Is one cyclical? Is one more fruitful when it's high or low or whatever? Understanding that can tell you a lot about how to maximize your time when you are able to be projecting, if that's your thing, or just out climbing at all, really. Um, so that's a teeny little tidbit. There's loads of mental game stuff you could go into, of course. Um, but trying to understand that can be helpful. Um, should I just roll into the next one? Yeah, <clears throat> let's do it. Uh, I think watching climbing videos and trying to understand movement can be really helpful as well. So I love this one. Yeah. Um, this is total like route setter nerd for me, but, and you know, you might find it like more helpful to mix up like watching gym videos and like videos on plastic and videos on rock. Um, sometimes watching gym climbs can be a little bit simpler to understand because maybe like you recognize some of the holds and stuff like that. Mm. Um, Anyways, so really trying to break down, you could choose like one move. It doesn't need to be like this deep inquiry into it because who has time for that every day? Um, but, you know, maybe you pick out one move out of a video and you really watch it a few times, break down why does this move go the way that it does? Or like if you're watching a comp video and there's athletes finding solutions that are diverse on the boulder, like why do each of those solutions work for that climber can be really helpful. Um, watching is a great way to learn. It's also a great way to, if you do get your gym time or you find yourself out at the crag, watching other climbers can be a great way to learn as well. Um, instead of just like zoning out while you're resting, there's a place and time for that. But odds are, if you're like watching other people, instead of scrolling Instagram, you're probably going to learn more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's another one. Can I share a thought? Absolutely. I love that. I, I really resonated with that one. And it made me, I think the, the time in my own climbing when I felt like I made the most improvement in movement and skill was when I was just like 
newer at it and I was just obsessed with Jonathan Segrist and I just watched every single video that he put out on the internet mm -hmm. with my face like three inches away from the screen. <laughs> just like, what? Like, how, does, how is he doing this, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it taught me a lot. I mean, I resonated with his style too. So that was, it was very inspiring to me to see how he climbed. I was climbing a lot in a similar style, like living at Smith Rock. And at the time he was really an expert at the crimpy, like, technical face climbing stuff. And I gained a ton from doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think I have again now more recently and realizing that like, because I focused on that style for so long, I'm, I have a lot to learn about dynamic movement and being more athletic and kind of gymnastic and climbing. And so watching some other athletes who are, who exemplify that has helped me again in rounding out my skill set a little bit. So, and anyone can do it if you have a if you're listening to this on your iPhone, then there you go. So. <laughs> yeah, it could be as little as like five minutes a few days a week, you know. It, yeah. All of those little things can really add up over time to be making pretty big changes. But yeah, you're spot on. I think that trying to get quite a bit of diversity in what you're consuming movement-wise and style-wise and all of that is going to be helpful. It might help you develop your own style too. Yeah. There's a book called The Inner Game of Tennis that I've recommended before on the show. It's it's about tennis, but it's really about uh, skill acquisition. Mm -hmm. And that book really changed my mind about how, how helpful it can be just to simply watch other people climb. It kind of breaks that down in a way that felt really compelling to me. And you don't even have to necessarily be like analyzing their movement, just like watching and noticing. Yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah. Next one. Next is visualization. So this is kind of like a two-pronged thing and I could go on for it, about it for a while. But uh, let's say you have a project that's far away or maybe you don't have a project. Maybe you're just going on a climbing trip. Kind of walking yourself through what that may look like when you're out there can be helpful and I'll kind of dive into that more in a later point. But I mostly want to focus on this, like, I think when you don't have a ton of access to rock climbing or even climbing in the gym, it adds a lot of pressure to trips and to sessions because you don't, you can't just be like, oh, I'll just try it again next climbing day. So I think that for a lot of people that can create this feeling of like, oh, what if like, what if the conditions are bad? What if... I don't feel good. What if X, Y, Z happens? And we kind of get into these loops of like, what if everything goes wrong? Which isn't constructive for most people. Um, so I think trying to turn that on its head and think like, well, what if everything goes right? Like, what does that look like? Hmm. And then we can still look at like, what if this happens? X, Y, Z, what's my solution going to be? And try to have like helpful, healthy ways of dealing with things going wrong. because inevitably things go wrong but not getting so caught up in the anxiety of that mm. potentially being a thing that you're not allowing yourself to view success as a possibility wow yeah that's cool mm -hmm. do you apply that to like when i read your point actually i'm staring at the same list as you visualization what if everything goes right i was imagining visualizing a route and imagining everything that's what I thought you were talking about was like specifically well, that, around yeah, and that too. Do you, yeah. Do you apply it on that kind of more zoomed in 
You could for sure. Yeah. I think, you know, if it's, if it's something that you're returning to trip after trip, taking video and being able to watch that or like recording a voice memo of yourself, like talking through the beta as you're looking at the route while you're at the crag or drawing out a beta map. There's like a loads, loads of ways that you can do it. If that's going to like help you stay motivated and psyched, then great. Um, I don't know. Sometimes if I'm on a climbing trip, I'll just lay in bed at night and like picture climbing the route um, to just really solidify beta and stuff. But, but yeah, the reason that is I, a thing too. Yeah. I mean, the reason I liked it is because it seems like it would <clears throat> solve that, that problem of like, oh, I surprised myself. I'm through the crux and now I'm like freaking out, you know, because mm-hmm. that's such a common thing. We're like, oh, what if I, like, I really hope I get through the crux and then you you do on an unexpected try and i think that's like why people punt sometimes is they haven't visualized what is going to happen if they finally get through the hard move that they've been stuck on mm-hmm. totally that's a whole <laughs> other can of worms okay great. okay great let's not let's not open <laughs> we're it not right going to open that one great but yes <laughs> visualizing in that way too but visualizing circumstances surrounding your climbing can be helpful as well and what what that's all going to look at like how you're going to deal with it i'm going to go to the last point first because it kind of fits more okay flow wise and then the last the last one will be just a quick hit but um decision maps so you want to have a planned approach for like trips or gym sessions if you're someone that's not being not able to get into the gym all the time um I feel like decision map sounds like really stressful (laughs) and serious but it's basically just kind of building this framework in your head of like what do I want to get out of the sport and one of the things that I try to really pay attention to with coaching is that yeah a lot of people reach out to coaches because they want to perform better. But a lot of people also reach out because they're wanting to enjoy the sport more and have a better Mm. relationship with it. And so the goal isn't always to climb harder. Sometimes the the goal is to like have a a healthier experience climbing, um, which is equally as important. Um, So decision maps, why do you climb? It's really important question to ask yourself and to refer back to like what is the point of you doing it for a lot of people it is the relationships that form around it it's the like kind of forcing us to be in the present moment while we're climbing sorts of things it's like a great avenue for dealing with things like anxiety and depression and you know honing tools that can help with stuff like that but are separate so that we were not like just in it all the time um so having those goals keeping them in mind understanding your why um and then planning your approach to each session whether it's indoors or outdoors with those things in mind so say i'm having a bad session at the gym and i'm just not having fun and one of the reasons i climb is because it's fun And maybe some of my friends are trying the new boulder problems. And like, yeah, I think climbing on the new boulders would be fun. That would really turn the session around for me so I can leave the gym feeling good. 
I don't think that's a bad decision to make sometimes, mm. but you know, it's like, it's keeping that, that why in mind, because most people aren't rock climbing to like be totally elite and that's it. You yeah. Know, they're, they're doing it because they enjoy it and they have strong relationships around it and it takes them to places they wouldn't go otherwise and stuff like that. So Trying to understand that. It should be fun most of the time, I think. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people tend to have more success when that stuff is actually the focus, which I think is counterintuitive, but it's also true. Mm -hmm. If you're having a good time and you're inspired and you feel like supported and happy about your climbing, then you're probably more likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing to keep in mind as well, I think. And having a backup plan, you know, there's... It's important to keep in mind that there's like there's multiple paths to the same end. Um, if you're like trying to climb a certain grade or something like that, there's not one way to go about doing that. There's a lot of different options mm. that you have. And the experiencing that you're having along the way is important too. Mm -hmm. Okay, how do you navigate decision maps with your athletes as a coach? Is this something that you're having people journal about and write about or is this just is this simply encouraging people to ask themselves that why question? Why do they climb? Um, so I actually, I ask all of my athletes that question as part of the intake process, because to me, that feels like a really important thing for me to know if I'm trying to help them have a better cl time climbing, whatever that looks like for them. Um, I've never actually had anyone like sit down and draw one out. It's usually more of like a conversational thing. Like if we're thinking about what the point of us working together is how do we like make sure that we're working towards that in a way that's sustainable too because mm -hmm. it's not just like this is the way that, like I'm, I'm not really one to tell people what to do I'm like here's what I think would be helpful and we can try it and if you don't like it then we'll try something else or if it's not helping whatever because you know everyone should be like in charge of their own experience I think and more just there to help Anyways, I went off on a tangent there, but ha. <laughs> it's more of a because framework. Because your company is Decision called Tangent. Maps. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's more of a framework. I use it a lot when I'm thinking about my own climbing. Okay. Um, like everything I decide from day to day is like based off of keeping my experience as positive as I need it to be in order to like stick with it. Um, so... Like, say I'm planning to go try the Proj and, like, I've been dealing with finger issues lately and I get up on the route and I'm like, this feels bad. And not only does it not feel great on my fingers, but I'm also, like, getting frustrated because of that. And if I go back to my why, I like climbing because I enjoy, like, the, the flow of movement and the relationships and the fun and the, like, self-expression that can be had through it. And so that becomes like an easy decision to be like, I'm just going to pull my draws off of this and maybe I'll come back to it later. And I'm going to go do something that like brings me a little bit more joy because I know that to jump back to that confidence, motivation, expectations thing, I know that if I'm having fun and enjoying my experience, I'm more likely to have success. Mm. It's that low, the low expectations work best for me. Mm. And that's not true for everyone, but... So yeah, I refer back to that a lot, just day to day. Nice. Climbing. 
What's an example of a backup plan? And let's maybe look at this through the context of someone who only has access to a gym or has limited access to rock climbing. And yeah, let's let's maybe give examples of that in terms of a gym session and then maybe also a climbing outdoor session. We could do both. Of like a backup plan for for each? What's yeah. the what's the initial goal of the session? Do you want to give me one? <laughs> great, I'll tell you a backup plan. Great great question. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. What would be a good example to use? <laughs> You're the coach. <laughs> <laughs> You're the podcast interviewer. <laughs> I'm just outsourcing this Q&A. Um, okay, <clears throat> let's see. What would be a good example? Let's start with the outdoor climbing. Okay. So I'm just going to pull right back to the one I was just talking about, basically. So let's say I was planning. Let's talk about a different route, same day. Um, let's say I'm planning to try this thing I have draws on, right? And it rains the night before and the rock's okay to climb on, but there's a traverse section that's a little lower quality, a little sandy. It's not sandstone. Okay, calm down. It's limestone. It won't break when it's wet, except for the sandy limestone. Mm -hmm. And... The fall would likely be kind of gnarly if it broke. Uh, it's a, a bit of a traverse and a run out to the next bolt, right? So that was my plan going into the session. Well, I probably don't want to climb on that route now, like taking those things into account. So I come up with a backup plan, right? Maybe there's an adjacent route that I want to try. Maybe there's a direct start that avoids the traverse. I love the way you're talking about this. This is exactly what happened yesterday. It's exactly you're what happened yesterday. <laughs> you're just talking about yesterday. I am just talking we about just, yesterday. We just like rolled up to the parking lot <laughs> and we're like, fuck, your route is wet. Yeah. At the bottom of your route is it's, totally wet. It was wet at the chassis bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the chassis traverse bit where you would take a big pendulum whip and end up below a roof. Yeah. Not ideal. But yeah, in this case, there was a, there's a direct start to the exact same finish, which is the hard part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah. was dry. So pivoted to trying that instead. Um, it's not a bad thing to have variety in your climbing too, you know? I think I think people often get really sucked into projecting and they're just beating their heads against the wall on one route and never sending. And like, it is incredibly valuable to have days out at the crag where you just run around and clip a bunch of chains and climb a lot of moves. Yeah. And I think people lose sight of that sometimes or they think that it's not going to help them on their projects. And while that could be true in the short term, if we're playing any sort of long game and just trying to become better climbers and have more fun, that's usually a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. So. Nice. I mean, I guess that, yeah, I guess you already did give a gym example too. that example of pivoting to climbing with your friends to have fun because that's yeah. what you need that day. That's totally valid choice it's to make. It's a great backup plan. I think sometimes people like, <laughs> I think people can act sometimes like that's like, oh, you're like lacking the dedication to finish your training session. Mm. And like, while consistency is important, like climbing exists in the context of our larger lives and like well-being is more important than performance in my opinion i'd hope that would be most people's opinion but <laughs> who knows <laughs> i can't speak for anyone else yeah okay you have one more bullet point i have one more short one i could go down the rabbit hole so much on all of these um 
My last one is adding stability elements to strength exercises to build proprioception. So for those that don't know, proprioception is basically your body's ability to sense its positioning in space. Having a lot of it helps a lot in climbing. It really it really helps you like kind of discern when you're on more difficult climbs, like why did the move work this time and not the next time? Um, it can really streamline the the motor learning process a bit too, which, um, you know, people, people are projecting, right? And they, they're like, oh, I'm getting stronger on the project, like making more links, doing better. But then you'll also hear people be like, if you project all the time, it makes you weak. And here's why both of those things happen. It's because you're, you're experiencing this motor learning process. So, you're not necessarily getting stronger on the moves, you're getting better on the moves. And the more repetition you have, the faster your body can find those positions. And so you get this feeling like you're climbing stronger, but a large chunk of that is that you're better on the moves. Yeah, your body's just getting more efficient at that. Exactly, which means you're putting less energy into doing the moves, which is why (laughs) sometimes we say projecting, only projecting can make you weak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's why it like feels like it's making you stronger um anyways proprioception is cool (laughs) (laughs) um just to give like a quick example um this can be as simple as like standing on one foot when you're doing like upper body dumbbell things or something like that Hmm. um so a lot of the time if i'm doing an overhead press Instead of doing both arms at the same time, I'll do one and then I'll like stand on one foot. And you can play around with if you stand on the same side foot or the opposite side foot. And it adds this whole other level of stability and you're just way more engaged with the exercises. Because I think a lot of the time people just like go out, they're just like pumping the weights up and down Mm -hmm. and not paying attention and then moving on. Um, But adding that stability element transfers to climbing a lot better and it might mean that you're like not lifting as much weight but the skill element is there and that's a really great way to build that body awareness if you don't have the ability to be on the wall as much as you would like to yeah that's cool how do you think about compound movements and like balancing balancing those with exercises like using dumbbells standing on one leg because when i read your point i thought about i thought about compound lifts you know like they're a great bang for your buck like doing a deadlift is a great mm-hmm. bang for your buck yeah and does not include much of this proprioception and stability mm-hmm. and so you might combine deadlifting with like some kettlebell work or some rings or what you yeah. just described like turkish get-ups are great Turk- for this yeah too. totally yeah um i know you like kettlebell dead bugs yep those are sick which i've well. never tried before they're way harder than they look <laughs> i believe you yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah so how do you think about that like do you think compound lifts are still helpful for climbers? Do you do more of the uh, stability sort of stuff in lieu of more heavier compound lifts? Uh, the, the short answer is that it depends on the athlete because um, I, I mostly just work with people one-on-one. So, you know, if, if I was working with someone that had more limited access to the gym, I would include more stuff like that most likely and keep the more like compound lifts still have those in there because I think like I've found deadlifting to be extremely helpful for my own climbing at least and I think a lot of other people have as well um but yeah it just depends like if you know if I was working with a climber whose like movement is their strength 
and they already have excellent body awareness on the wall, then I probably wouldn't include stuff like that mm. as much. Yeah. But maybe I still would if they weren't getting as much climbing time as they wanted to mm. and they felt like it was going to be helpful. Um, so it just depends. Everyone is living their own lives. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's circumstances are different. Yeah. There's no like blanket solution. Yeah. Yeah. So to summarize all this, we've been talking about some things that are really helpful for people to think about and work on if they have limited access to rock climbing. We're hacking the system. We're hacking the system. Any other things that come to mind that we should touch on before moving on? Um, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> One thing that I would say is if you have circumstances in which you don't have access to good rock climbing or it's difficult to get out there, just encouraging people to get creative with what they do have when it comes to rock climbing. Like mm -hmm. I've, I've seen some pretty impressive results, not myself, but just in anecdotes from other people who just like got super, super kind of almost passionate about their really scrappy local little crag and just mm -hmm. climbed the crap out of it. You know, like I, an example that comes to mind is like the conversation I had with Alan Watts, where I believe he lived in, uh, Eugene at the time and was climbing at the Columns, which is like a a little crag, like literally downtown in mm -hmm. Eugene and just climbed every single thing. And then he started making up a limits and then eventually started climbing things one handed, you know, and he says he's climbed 514 and says that some of his hardest routes he's ever done were at that little place yeah. just because he got so, so dialed there and it applied readily to other rock climbing that he wanted to do later totally. on. So. Yeah, I would also add actually that like if you are resonating with this conversation and you're curious what you can do with your own um, circumstances and you want a little bit of help, a lot of coaches will do like an hour call with anyone and it can just be like a, a one-off um, and that's a really generally financially accessible like easy way to kind of get some professional feedback and help um, making the best out of your situation and yeah, just find a coach that you like resonate with and consider reaching out if that's something that you really want help with. Awesome. How can people connect with you if they're resonating with you right <laughs> that now? That was not a plug for myself. <laughs> it's okay. You're, you're here for, you're here for that. I want to, <laughs> I want to plug you. <laughs> um, probably through Instagram is the most surefire way to the, the I will see it sooner rather than later um so it's just tangent underscore climbing or tay underscore frag either is fine <laughs> <Tay> frag. <laughs> <clears throat> awesome i will link to both in the show notes for this episode all right good on that one yes okay next question this one's from hackan i hope i'm pronouncing your name correctly apologize if i'm getting it wrong hey steven I've been really curious about your nighttime bouldering sessions up in Leavenworth. I live in Scandinavia and we have really nice spring and falls for climbing, but often the summers are way too hot and humid to touch anything hard. I've heard you talk a lot about night sessions in Leavenworth, and I imagine that the climate there is quite similar to Scandinavia. So I would love it if you could talk a bit more in your Q&A sessions about how you go about that. If you have any nuggets about dew points, and relative and absolute humidity, that would be fantastic. My issue is that whenever I consider nighttime bouldering, 
I just think that the rock is going to get a lot of dew and condensation as the temps drop. I guess I should try it, but any beta would be super helpful. So yeah, I already answered... I already answered Hakan in an email, but I figured this was a really good question and something that other people might be curious about as well. So I'll share a few recommendations that I have and then see if you have any thoughts, Tay. Mm -hmm. um, my first one was get some lights. Get some really good lights. Um, I would Google, and I'll link to my favorites in the show notes if you want to just find those. Um, full disclaimer, it's an affiliate link. So if you do choose to buy those ones, I get a little kickback from that, but they're great. I have no other affiliation with the company. Um, but yeah, you can just search search for USB rechargeable work lights on Amazon. Um, you can probably find them at a hardware store as well. But those are awesome. I have two that are 3,000 lumens and a couple that are 1,500 lumens. Get like two to four of them and you can really light up a boulder problem or even a sport climb as we've been doing here in 10 sleep. And it's super fun. It just makes it feel really like a, just a cool vibe. It's almost like a competition feeling out there with the lights lighting up the wall and stuff. But that makes a really big difference. It's a lot easier to climb that way versus just having a headlamp on your head. And it makes it feel a lot less sad and lonely out there too. So that's the first one. Uh, next one is buy a fan. I think that goes a really long way for combating humidity. Just having a little bit of artificial wind out there. Um, you can have it blowing on your skin and just sit in front of it before you pull on the boulder. You can also try to have it angled so that it's hitting the boulder. That helps a lot. <clears throat> and I don't know, I, I actually have a couple temperature and humidity sensors that I bought that I take out climbing. And I was just talking about this with you, Tay, the other night. Like, I feel like I have, have still no understanding of humidity. It Turns just, out it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's so confusing. Like, we had... <laughs> I mean, it matters, but you're going to have a hard time, like, nailing numbers down that are ideal, I think. Because totally. there's just too many factors involved. There's too many factors. Like, we've had some days here where it was 40% humidity and really still, and it felt really bad, and my skin felt really clammy and soft, and I was just getting cut up on the little crimps and stuff. And we had a session two nights ago where it was, I think it got up to 60% humidity, but it was like about to start snowing and there was like this gentle breeze and it was like amazing. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't understand how that works. But the point there, I think, is that every area is different. Every boulder problem is going to be different depending on whether it was in the sun that day or the aspect or whether it gets wind. So I think I would just encourage you and anyone else listening to just go out there and try it. Just see what the conditions are like, um, just start to kind of pay attention. Like if you notice a trend where the, like some, a trend I've often noticed is that the dew point tends to be the highest right at dusk. And then mm -hmm. when it gets fully dark, it'll often feel better. Um, just start paying attention to that stuff and then plan your next session around what you learned and just try to like improve on that over time. And then just go climb on it regardless. I think you, yeah. know, you can do it unless you go try it. And yeah, sometimes the conditions aren't going to be ideal but you just can't know unless you go out there um and this is something that like i lived in southwest montana for a ton of years and uh there were so many days where like you know you wake up in the morning planning to go climbing and it just looks so shitty outside and you're like god i don't want to go but you always just have to go because often the conditions end up being very different at the crag um so just going out and trying i mean the worst case scenario is that you don't climb it and that you're like 
building extra strength and learning extra things on it because the situation isn't ideal. And when you get that magic day and the conditions are better, it's going to feel easier as a result. (laughs) So the perspective is helpful too. I mean, think about when you're like, most brand new climbers like don't give a shit about conditions. Like I don't remember ever thinking about that for the first like several years of my rock climbing. I was like, whatever. I just like going climbing. I'm going to go no matter what. I like, mm-hmm. you know, I like never even check the weather really. I just totally. like step outside and I'm like, cool, let's go to the crag. <laughs> I'm going to go climb regardless of whether it's supposed to be high humidity or low or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, yesterday is another... Yesterday is a great example. We left camp here and it looked like our climbing area was like literally in a cloud and it kind of was. And we had a great day of climbing. Yeah, it worked out. All right. You can always do something. You can always do something. Okay. This next question is from Cody and I'm going to defer this one to you and then maybe I'll share any thoughts if I have anything extra, but this mm-hmm. is more your lane. Cody writes, what is a solid training slash climbing split for a summer block of training? Assuming unfettered access to a climbing gym and a standard weight training gym. And then another question, I'm just going to read all of this and then we can tackle it um, one piece at a time. What do you think is the best bang for your buck strength training exercise that relates to climbing? And then my first thought reading this was, okay, I need a lot more context about this person. I need to know who they are. I need to know what their goals are, things like that. So I mm-hmm. asked for more context from Cody and they wrote, Hey, Steven, I've been climbing for about three years now. However, a lot of that time is in spurts because of my university schedule. I have some experience outdoors leading 5.8 and a 10C indoors. My biggest goal in climbing is to become a certified mountain guide which requires me to confidently climb at a 10 plus, 510 plus level on various rock types and disciplines. A lot of this will take time, but I don't want my physicality to be the limiting factor. I guess I'm looking for a way to maintain physical shape so that when I have time and opportunity to climb, it's only the technique that needs to come back. Thanks for creating this content. I absolutely love it. And the stoke that you and your guests have for climbing is contagious. Thanks, Cody. And I'll turn over that question to you. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go in on this one. Perfect. Um, so the first thing I would think about is how you're prioritizing each thing. So in my experience, most climbers are like physicality is not the limiting factor. Um, it can be for sure. But and especially if you're like a newer climber. But very frequently, the issues are the thing that's holding them back is mental or technical and not or tactical and not physical. Um, So keeping that in mind, and that's all stuff that you can do with very limited climbing time. So being aware of that, especially with the goal of becoming a guide eventually, like understanding all the mental aspects of climbing is an awesome skill to have because you're leading people through the mountains that have maybe never done it before. And there's a lot of things that come up in the process of that. Like it's scary. It's different. It's a new experience. Um, So having ways to talk through all that stuff with people is going to be exceedingly helpful as well. Um, Anyways, uh, what was the first part of the question? 
first part of the question was, what is a solid training slash climbing split for a summer training block? Mm. <laughs> I'm going to do the it depends thing again. Yeah. I mean, that could, maybe the answer is like, that's maybe not the right question to be asking at this stage could be. of yeah. climbing. I mean, and the thing is, too, that like turns out climbing is pretty good training for climbing. That's a thought that I had is that, I mean, if your goal is to be able to climb five, 10 plus on a variety of different rock types, most climbers that I meet that climb beyond that have, you know, have gotten well past 510 by just rock climbing. Like you can develop the strength to climb harder than that through just rock climbing without doing any sort of supplemental training. I think mm -hmm. most of the time. I know a lot of climbers that climb like 514 and have never really done a training block. Totally, totally, um, yeah. And it really just comes down to like taking intentional approaches to things and understanding like if you know if I were to use myself as an example I've worked a lot on dynamic movement in the last few years of my climbing and now like the static side needs some some shoring up and as like a more technique dominant climber I've tried to really pay attention to moving with higher tension and like practicing more static movements when I'm like on my warm-ups each day um, and that makes a pretty huge difference strength-wise that is uh, directly applicable to climbing because mm -hmm. it's climbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, he they said that with the um, university schedule, they have pretty limited time, right? So bang for your buck strength exercise. If I had to choose one, I'd say deadlifting. Um, if you're thinking about deadlifting, make sure that you get the proper instruction on how to do it. Uh, because if you don't really have a weightlifting background, there's a lot of potential to hurt yourself there. Um, but I do think that that one is probably the most applicable. Would you agree with that? Bang for your buck. Well, yeah. Deadlift. I mean, my answer was actually going to be go bouldering as much as you can, but, yeah. um, I, I think but limited schedule. Yeah. I think Cody's asking for like a weight gym strength exercise that's best bang for your buck. So yeah, in that case, I would agree. Mm -hmm. And I'll share one video that I really like. It's like five tips to help you have at least safe form in the deadlift. It's a pretty like foolproof video. I think it does a mm -hmm. good job of saying like, if you follow these five steps, like you're at least not going to hurt yourself. You know, your form might not be perfect, but. Yeah. And I think Natasha Barnes has a, has a like story highlight on her Instagram too for deadlifting form. And there's not like one perfect way to do it, but it just comes down to like learning the mechanics and then understanding how it works for your body because everyone has different anthropometrics mm -hmm. um, and we'll need to adjust accordingly for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of it just comes down to not loading things too fast. Yeah. Too heavy, too fast. But yeah, I would say, I mean, if, if your gym is at a university, I'm just using this example because mine was, I had a, you know, the climbing gym was in the rec center. Mm -hmm. um, and you only have 30 minutes to do something, I mean, consider spending that time just bouldering. Yeah, even if you just go and do a warm-up and play around a little bit, that's still going to be helpful. Yeah. All those all those 30-minute blocks can add up pretty quickly. All right, hopefully that is helpful. Cody, feel free to reach out if you have additional questions. Okay, next question is from Justin. How often do you look at other people's beta videos when you're trying a boulder or sport climb? How do you think about beta videos in general? 
If you do look at beta videos, are there ever situations where you intentionally avoid watching beta videos so as to have the experience of discovering more of the beta yourself? This is a really cool question. Yes, there are definitely times when I avoid it. I think there's a ton of value. I like I, the, my favorite way to do this is to be at a climbing area. Like the, the first thing that comes to mind is being in Waco, Waco tanks and it, intentionally having days where I just go kind of off the beaten path and explore and seek out boulders in my kind of second tier range. So let's say I'm like projecting a couple of V10s in Waco for a season. I might have some days, I might do this once a week where I go out and seek out some obscure or lesser climbed boulders in the V4 to V7 range and just try to play around and discover and figure out the beta myself. Um, usually there aren't videos for things like that. And I think there's a ton of value in the discovery that comes with that. I do use beta videos. I use them probably most often on hard boulder problems for me, um, especially if I feel stuck or just want to explore more options. And I think they can be really helpful. Um, it's one of those things. I think they're a very helpful tool I'm sure they can become a crutch and I'm sure they are a crutch for some people. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, I don't use them for sport climbs very often just because I think it's really rare to find beta videos for a lot of the sport climbs that I try. So most of my sport climbing, I think I'm discovering beta for myself. But there's also, I mean, there's, a, there's always discussion. Like that's such a cool part of climbing culture is connecting with other people over a shared experience on a route and asking their thoughts on a section that you're struggling with and sharing beta and talking about it around the campfire and just things don't like spray that. just don't <laughs> just don't talk about it unsolicited to people ask permission people <laughs> yeah um but yeah i think i hope i answered that question um it just depends i i really like both i really like the experience the challenge of trying to flash things sometimes. In, in some cases, I will study many, many different beta videos for a boulder I want to try to flash. Jesse Firestone had some really great tips for that. One thing that he likes to do is make sure that he goes, look, goes and looks at the boulder and then watches a bunch of videos and then goes and looks at the boulder again, maybe even rewatches videos again, just having multiple cycles of that so you have a little bit more context for what you're seeing in these other videos. And that for me makes the flashing challenge a little bit more of just a pure physical challenge. Like, am I strong enough and good enough in my movement to just execute this set of moves? So it's just different. I like it, it's a different challenge, but I also really enjoy and think there's tons of benefit in the challenge of like, okay, here's this puzzle in front of me. It's an obscure boulder with no chalk on it. Can I discover how to climb this piece of rock? I think that's really cool too, so. I have thoughts. Great. <laughs> That's why you're here. <laughs> um, I almost never look at beta videos unless I'm like really, really stumped on something. And that usually doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you are very, very good at figuring out beta. <laughs> um, I think you're right that it can be a crutch for people sometimes. And, you know, as much as we talk about all these patterns and stuff that exist within the climbing community... And within climbing training and stuff like that and whatever the science says, like it ultimately just comes down to what works for you and having good understanding of what of how to discover beta that works for your body is 
really important. And sometimes looking at videos kind of stymies that process a little bit. Um, I'd also add, so I know I just said like, I don't watch a lot of these and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of beta videos that exist are likely of men that are quite a bit taller than I am. Um, so it's pretty infrequent that I'm going to use their beta anyway. Um, so it's not very helpful. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind too. I think like everyone climbs differently, like from, you know, a, a male to female, like our, our like weight distribution is different and stuff like that. Um, flexibility can vary. And that's not, that's not like necessarily down a line of biological sex, but generally speaking, if you are a short female, you may not find it as helpful to watch beta videos. <laughs> yeah. Unless you go check out Juliet Amanda's stuff because she crushes and she has a lot of videos of boulders in the southeast. <laughs> awesome. I'll link yeah. to I'll link to her. I mean, yeah, there's there's more of I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's cool. There's like more diversity of body sizes popping up in this space, you know, mm -hmm. like shorty beta is like a thing that people are are sharing. And but yeah, so try to find body types that look similar to yours or a few different ones so you have options to play with if you're going to use this as a tool. Um, a little more context for you, Justin. You know, I'm saying that I do both, but just to contextualize it, I, I would guess that like 80 or 90% of my rock climbing, I'm not glancing at beta videos. I'm out there like discovering things for myself just because, yeah. That's part of the fun of it. It's part of the fun I of think. it, yeah. I like and, the problem solving puzzle aspect. And it's so fun when you like go through that process and then you find the way that works for you. Oh, it's so satisfying. Especially if it's like a different way <laughs> than most people do it. Yeah. Which that happens to me very frequently just because of the way that I climb. Yeah. I'm like, check out this sick heel hook that's level with my hands. <laughs> and all the five foot 11 dudes that have posted videos of it are like, what the fuck? You can't do it that way. <laughs> this isn't the standard beta. Yeah. <laughs> cool anything else on that one nope okay next question is from toby it's actually more of a comment than a question um i appreciated this message and resonated with it and thought i would share uh share some thoughts because i thought it was helpful so toby writes hi i'm a very new climber but have enjoyed listening to people talk about achieving excellence in whichever form that may take i just listened to episode 61 with chelsea mern and towards the end you both talked about information overload and also not remembering light bulb moments my friend writes a summary slash highlight of every book he has read and interesting conversations and documentaries podcasts lectures etc Maybe not every book, but those nuggets which feel significant at the time. He is now on his third notebook, which he can refer to. Toby writes, I have tried it, but don't always have the discipline, so only have a few pages of notes. I like the way it encourages me to reflect and also allows me to revisit some of those things at a later date. I might not read the whole book again, but if I've made a note that chapter three and pages 62 and 82 were interesting, it means I can revisit and see how my thoughts have moved from then. Toby writes, keep it up. I hope the sun is shining on you, though not directly on the rocks you are about to climb. So yeah, <laughs> thanks, Toby. I love that. I think you're spot on with that. And I just wanted to, 
Um, I've talked about this before, but I just wanted to share this again. I think that's a really, really good idea. And before I started this podcast, I was an engineer and I was in a cubicle and I had time to listen to podcasts when I had tedious tasks to do at my desk. And I was consuming a lot of information, most of it outside of the climbing space, just listening to lots of other podcasts. And I started to notice that I would have these like amazing epiphanies or light bulb moments from something that a guest would say, and then I would forget it a couple of weeks later. And so I actually have a Google document on my Google Drive called Nuggets, and I would just start to make notes of these things. And um, very similar to you, they would be very, very short notes, bullet points, um, you know, talking about your friend who writes pages and pages. One thing I noticed is that if I wrote more than just a bullet point, I would never be bothered to go back and read it again. Um, so I think that's a really great idea to just make yourself a short note that, hey, you know, I listened to this podcast and at 52 minutes, they talked about this thing. Listen to this again, go back and listen to this again. Just a reminder to myself um, to go back and revisit something that felt significant to me at the time. Because we are in an information space where sometimes it feels like we're standing in front of a fire hose and it can be really hard to hold on to things that that feel really important and significant and that we want to internalize. So yeah, I think taking notes about stuff um, is a great idea. And I think there's no right or wrong way to do it. Just whatever works for you. It can be really simple. That's why I write out the timestamps for my episodes. That's hopefully to help you guys find stuff if you want to go back and listen to something again. But it also helps me. Um, I do that because writing it out really helps me internalize things. And sometimes I go back and listen to chapters of my own podcast just to just to re-listen to something that I thought was really significant from a guest. So yeah, just wanted to share that for you guys. Do you, <laughs> you're smiling. <laughs> do you have any thoughts? I do. Um, <laughs> I also find it quite hard to like be writing all the time. Um, it's also sort, sort of difficult. Like if you have pages and pages of things written down, I think it can be hard to find stuff, especially if it's handwritten and you can't just like control F search for a word. Mm. Um, so that's why I like doing it digitally. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. helpful. But if writing's not your preferred medium, I think another really good way to do this that's super easy, quick in the moment, because we all always have our phones on us, um, is to just record a voice memo. Like, oh, I was listening to this part of this podcast, or I was just like reading, I'm on this page, here's what they said, here are my thoughts, and then just name the voice memo in a way that's gonna allow you to remember what it's about. Um, and then you can go back and listen to it. And that's kind of a fun way to do it, I think, because it's a little easier. It's a little more straight to the point. Um, it could be kind of fun to like have the, you know, emotion and excitement behind it. If it's something that you're like, oh my God, I just realized this, it all makes sense now. <laughs> like that can yeah. be fun to kind of revisit too. And you get a little bit um, more depth out of it that way, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. What does your process look like for revisiting those things? Do you go back periodically and just listen to all those or is it just as you think of them? Um, I don't really do it a ton because I don't generally have a hard time remembering stuff like that, <laughs> to be honest. But yeah, when I do, I'll like, I'll go back and just check it out every once in a while. I'll like go through and re-listen to things from a long time ago. And I think it can be really interesting too, because sometimes you'll find that like your perspective totally shifts and you're like, I don't identify with this at all anymore. <laughs> That's cool. 
because it's kind of rad when that happens too. Yeah. You're like, wow, look how different this is now. Um, yeah, so I don't do that. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, everyone. But voice messages definitely, definitely easier than typing or writing things out by hand, I think. Yeah. It's a lot faster often too. I've yeah. started sending voice messages to my friends instead of text messages because I'm like, if I have more than a sentence to type out, I'm not going to spend time typing it out. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I know. They're awesome. Yeah. That's cool. And you get a little more out of it that way, I think, too. You get the inflection and all of that. Yeah, totally. Do you do you have any do you have any thoughts or tips on how you organize those? Like how you label them in a way that makes them make sense to you later? Do you like type in the name of the book or the thing in your title? Um, it probably just depends on like how your brain works. I, I think if I was using that pretty heavily, I'd probably name the resource so like where what was i listening to but also like you can just say that at the start of the voice message you could be like okay i'm listening to episode 20 of the nugget and so and so just said this and here's a thought that i had mm. and then it's all just right there and maybe you know if there's some central idea like let's say someone was talking about um internal motivation and you were like, I just had this epiphany about internal motivation. Then maybe you name it internal motivation and you have the resource right at the start of the voice message. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Okay. Three more questions. And these are mostly questions or clarifications about episodes and specifically my training. So this one is from Sites spelled S-Y-T-S-E. I apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for the episode. I was just wondering if you still do the twice a day low intensity loading alongside this program. Um, so Seitz is talking about the Emil Abrahamson twice a day hangboarding. And he was asking if I still do that. I think that was a response to a follow-up that I did recently with Steve Mesh. So yeah, good question. Um, I'm no longer doing that twice a day every day. Um, I have kind of transitioned or pivoted to an approach that Ned Feely inspired in his episode and from reading his book, Beast Making. So I'm kind of rotating through three or four different hangboard protocols in a week, hitting on each of them once. Um, I've talked about that quite extensively with him, and you can actually listen to my latest follow-up with Ned if you want to get all the details there. Yeah, so I've moved away from that. I really had a pretty, I had a good experience with the Emil twice a day hangboarding thing. My fingers felt pretty darn healthy. I did see some impressive strength improvements initially in the first six to 12 weeks of doing that. I was pretty impressed with that. And then things definitely kind of leveled off and it felt like I was no longer getting much benefit from hitting that all the time. And I actually, and this is totally my fault, not Emil's fault or that protocol's fault, but I developed some capsulitis in my dip joint of my left index finger, I think from going a little bit too aggressive on full crimps when doing that protocol. I wasn't loading them very heavy, but I wasn't totally loading them lightly either. I was, I was pushing it a little bit and I started to get some irritation from hangboarding every single day. So... Um, food for thought, just something to be aware of. I don't think it's a silver bullet sort of program. 
I still there do. There are no silver bullets. <laughs> there are no silver bullets. I still do use that protocol as a warm up almost every single climbing day, and I use it every single time I do an what I would call a normal hangboard workout. So if I was going to do max hangs, for instance, I might start with the Emil ten minutes of the Emil protocol, just doing minimums basically, just to warm the fingers up a little bit. So I do like that just because it's. I don't have to think about it. It's an easy way to get warm on the hangboard. I can just do the exact same thing every time. And I still like it for that reason. I think there's value in it though. Like I talked to Dr. Carrie Cooper about this. She has a very similar protocol that she calls minimums that she likes to do on, she likes to have her clients do on rest days as a way to just kind of keep the tendons moving and get nutrients to your connective tissues and things. I think that's a great idea and I've been a little bit lazy with it lately, but um, I do think it helps with recovery and things like that. So that's my long-winded answer to that question. I have no comment. No comment. Okay. No great. comment. <laughs> Next question is from Murphy's Law 24 on Instagram. They write, hey man, listen to your most recent episode with Steve Mesh. How do you warm up for max hangs on a lifting day? Great question. Um, so this summer I was in a training block and I was training four days a week, two climbing days on the moon board, and then two days where I was lifting weights and doing some hangboarding. So that's where this question came from. And my answer is that I would just warm up for the max hangs the same way that I would normally warm up for max hangs. Um, I just always warm up the same way for max hangs is my answer. I think doing a little bit of general body warm up whenever you're hangboarding is a great idea just to get the body moving, get your temperature, your internal temperature up a little bit. That can be as simple as push-ups or going for a fast walk or jumping jacks or lifting, whatever you want to do. So in that sense, when I'm lifting weights, I usually do some heavy lifting first and then do the hangboarding later. Um, this is something that Steve Bechtel's written about a lot, trying to get the hormonal benefits of the heavy lifting and uh, you know capitalize on those with your finger training. I'm not really sure how much of a difference that makes, but it does make sense to me. So that's what I like to do. And it is nice. Like I can tell that my body is really warmed up after I've done some lifting when I go to hangboard, but I still go through like a 10 to 15 minute hangboard warm-up routine, which is just, usually I do the Emil protocol. I just do 10 minutes of gentle hanging 10 seconds on the minute. And then I usually just kind of ramp up. I just, you know, whatever my grip is that day, let's say I'm training half crimp on a 20 mil, I'll just start to do progressively more difficult sets with as much rest in between as I need until I'm getting close to that max that I'm going to train at for the day. And then usually I feel pretty good. I feel ready to go. So short answer is Whatever works for you. I, I just warm up the same way that I would if I was just warming up for max hangs on their own. Sick. <laughs> um, yeah, I think whatever works for you is a good way of looking at that. It's going to be valuable, obviously, to understand like what it feels like in your body when you're warm and ready to pull hard. So paying attention to that in more regular sessions as you're climbing too can be helpful. I kind of go by feel in that scenario. So like I don't have the same protocol every time I'll like start out with some sort of general warm up to get my body warm and I might do some like dynamic stretching and then I'll just start out just like pulling on the hangboard with my feet on the ground and I'll just progressively increase that until I feel like I'm ready to hang and then I'll hang at body weight a few times at different durations and 
just kind of like keep going for that feeling of being warm. And then I don't like add a ton of weight with my max hang. So I don't generally do warm up sets with weight, but yeah, that can be a good way. Sometimes I like to super circuit my deadlifting with my max hangs, mm-hmm. but that's past warm up. But sometimes I'll I'll do that through the warm up too. I'll do like my warm up deadlift sets, super circuited with my warm up hangs. Yeah, I've done that as well. I like that. Super time. My nice sufficient way to do it. Nice. And if that hormonal shift is helpful, then you're get covering that too. Mm-hmm. I don't really know the the. I like I've heard that, but I don't know the the hard science behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Integrated strength. That's what Steve Bechtel calls that. I think he is a fan of doing like a compound lift and then some hangboarding and then a mobility exercise and then come mm-hmm. back, coming back to the next set of the the lift and yeah. just circuiting them, circuiting yeah. them like that. Don't overthink it. Yeah. Great. Okay. Final question or final two questions from Brianna. Hey, Steven, question on the pyramids. Do you record all new sends in each iteration of the pyramid or do you move the, quote, old sends up from one to the next? So Brianna is asking about using pyramids of ascents to kind of build up your base of climbing and and try to access the next most difficult grade. So this is something, for context, I talked about with uh, Steve Mache in our very first episode. He was encouraging me to build up my pyramid of bouldering on my trip to Waco. And he kind of showed me how I can progress that over time and work up from, you know, trying to climb V10 to trying to climb V11 to trying to trying to climb V12. So yeah, to answer the question, yes, old sends do count. So whenever you're going from one pyramid to the next, I always, I'm always filling out more than one pyramid at a time. I'm filling, filling out my current pyramid that I'm trying to complete. And then those sends are also counting towards the next one. I think I've actually shared my pyramids that were in progress in the show notes of all my episodes with Steve Mache. So if you have more questions about that, I'll link those to this episode too. So you can actually see my pyramids and how I do that. But yes, the old sends do count and you're just building on each pyramid over time. And then Brianna's next question. I'd also love to hear if you have any thoughts on the one, two, four, eight, sixteen pyramid versus other iterations. For example, Lattice Training recently recommended one, three, nine, twenty-seven in a video about climbing five thirteen. Thanks. Ooh. Yeah, twenty seven's a lot. Yeah, twenty seven's a lot. So to, to have a lot of rock climbing access to be able to do that. You do, you do. So yeah, to to add some context there, or to clarify what Brianna's asking about. If the goal was to climb 513, let's say 513A, and you were doing a 1, 2, 4, 8, 16 pyramid, so every layer of the pyramid is twice as big as the one above it, then you would be eventually trying to do 113A, you'd be trying to do 212Ds, 412Cs, 812Bs, and 1612As. And you can work on them out of order, but you're just trying to fill in that pyramid of ascents to kind of work up towards climbing 513. And what she's asking about, I guess Lattice recommended doing 113A, 312Ds, 912Cs, and 2712Bs in the video. Oh my God, 2712Bs? <laughs> Who has access to 2712Bs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if there's 2712Bs at Smith where I lived for a Okay, long time. here's my Okay, here's my issue with the numbers of pyramids because I just think it's, 
My my short answer is it doesn't matter. Just yeah, yeah. Just like the, I, I want to share why I think pyramids are helpful, and then. <laughs> Am I stealing from you? Do you, you want to? Okay. <laughs> go, go I wasn't it. done. Go um, for it. Sorry. Okay. So <laughs> it's important to keep in mind what the intention of building a pyramid is. So the whole point of it is that you are doing a diversity of moves and building up that vocabulary in order to help you progress to the next level. I wouldn't like hold yourself to stiff numbers on that stuff because totally yeah like as i mentioned already like the access is an issue for sure assuming you're building an outdoor pyramid uh that's part of it and also like keeping that again the intention behind your climbing at the forefront too so like if you want to get better but you also want to like be able to go and try the things that inspire you that you're psyched to try like don't let the numbers in your pyramid hold you back from doing that um but another really important thing and benefit from paying at least a little bit of attention to the pyramid is that you get practice in sending and i think people undervalue that a lot whether it's because they you know assuming that they have access a lot of the time i think people are more willing to fail on harder routes than they are on ones that they perceive as something they should be able to do and sending is a skill like being able to execute is a skill and if you are only ever working in those upper tiers and you're not sending things when you have the opportunity to you're really missing out on complete reps of dealing with the whole like mental and tacticals game mm. of um, being able to send routes that are challenging for you. So yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't worry about the numbers, but the the movement vocabulary building is important. And if you don't have the ability to like build up those numbers so much, then think about like other ways that you can challenge yourself on routes that you've done already, whether it's like, I'm going to try to climb this like one footed or something like that. I'm going to try to climb it as fast as I can. And I'm going to try to climb as slow as I can. There's a lot of other parameters you can put in place uh, or trying to climb it with different beta. It's mm. pretty frequent that there's multiple options or skipping rests or skipping rests. Yeah. Et cetera. So there's ways to get creative with it too. The way I think about it in my own climbing is just like, it's more of like a guideline than a rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. I think getting tied to the numbers is a mistake. I completely agree with everything you just said. That was great. Great. Um, I do have some more thoughts I'm going to share. I do personally love the one, two, four, eight, 16 pyramid as a, as my guideline that works really well for me. It feels like the right balance for me of pushing myself. Cause here's my, here's my thoughts. I think the pyramid idea is especially helpful for two different types of climbers. One type of climber being they realize, holy shit, I've already done 20 12 A's and my goal is to climb 13 A someday. You're probably you're probably pretty ready to start trying some of those harder grades in the 512 range and maybe even getting on a 513. Um, on the flip side, if you've only done one of each, then you probably have a lot to learn from backfilling mm -hmm. and going back and doing a lot more of those 12 A's and B's because you're going to be challenged. Like they're not going to be easy for you probably. And you're going to be able to do them as well. So you're going to get like Tay's saying a lot of that repetition. Um, I found for me with bouldering, um, I've, I've completed 
two pyramids so far since I started working with Steve. I filled out a V10 pyramid and then a V11 pyramid, and now I'm only a V12 away from finishing the V12 pyramid with bouldering. Uh, for me, I've had to do extra of a lot of the grades actually before I was on before I was able to send the thing at the very top of the pyramid. Um, but there's no harm in that. Like you can start with the with whatever pyramid that you've laid out, you can always add extra to each row yeah. as and needed. It's also important to remember that grades don't necessarily line up with the level of challenge of a route for you totally. as well, yeah. which is why it's important to not get too tied to the numbers, I think, because you could come across, you know, you could be consistently on siting 12A and cr come across an 11C that takes you four tries. Like that doesn't mean you should just write it off because it's not within your pyramid. Um, it's still going to be valuable to do it if there's some challenge there. Um, so not, yeah, just remembering that people get really tied up in the grades. Mm -hmm. I got to do a 12C. <laughs> I'm going to ignore this 12B that looks really sick that I really want to climb. Mm. Like, just do them both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do the D grades. I think there's a ton of value in D grades. Run around and climb a bunch of obscure link ups. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I've been doing this trip because I've climbed in 10 sleep too much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being my co-host. Uh-huh. That's all the questions we've got for this Q&A. Um, yeah. Thanks, Tay. You're welcome. Anything you want to plug? Um, I forgot to mention this earlier in the first part of our conversation, but Chris Hampton and I did record like a board meeting-esque episode over the summer about leveraging the gym environment to build outdoor skills for sport climbing. So it's not out yet, but people can keep an eye out for that if they're looking for ways to really optimize as well. Nice. And those are all like different points from what I said earlier in this conversation. So awesome. Sweet. Yeah. I will keep my eye out for that as well. Actually, I'll just ask you. Just tell me when that comes out. Yeah. Just remind me. I don't know when it when it is. <laughs> if I don't see it. And then I'll sh try to find a way to share it with you guys as well. And yeah, I think that's it. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. And, um, and also thank you to everyone who submits any kind of feedback, all feedback for the show. I really appreciate it. I, I know that... I mean, it's great to hear positive feedback. I know it takes a lot more courage and energy to submit critical feedback. And um, a lot of you guys have done that in a really thoughtful, gracious, kind way. And, and that means a lot to me. And my door is always open to feedback. So thank you guys. Thanks for submitting questions. I hope that this episode has been helpful. And thank you again to Tay. I'll link to all things Taylor Fragameni in the show notes for this episode if you want to connect with her and learn more about her coaching over at Tangent Climbing. And I hope you guys are having an amazing week and thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Woo! Good. <laughs> We do it.